From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Just close your eyes and think about mouse traps. You know what? I just can't I just can't think of anything. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio ephemera we find all over the world. Mostly we scour the internet and the airwaves, curating the best and most interesting audio out there, and then we bring it to you each week on ReSound. But once a year, we like to switch things up and create something new, bring original work into the world, midwife, if you will. And we do it through our public audio challenge. This is a call to experienced producers and newbies alike to make short audio stories with a few strings attached. And all this will cost you is, uh, what have you got there? One dollar. A dollar? One dollar. The 2007 Audio Challenge was a collaboration between the Third Coast Festival and the Dollar Store Show, an occasional live reading at the Hideout in Chicago. For each Dollar Store Show, founder Jonathan Messenger gives writers, comics, and actors an item from the Dollar Store and asks them to write a short story inspired by this item. When Julie Shapiro, managing director of the Third Coast Festival, experienced the Dollar Store Show, she thought there might be a way to bring the same idea to the airwaves. Together, Julie Shapiro and Jonathan Messenger set off for a dollar store in Chicago. Once there, they sifted through the myriad items, practical and bizarre, and chose three. A package of four old-fashioned spring-loaded mousetraps, an old-school bicycle bell, and a ceramic mug with a bright, some might even say garish, mosaic background that reads, well-behaved women rarely make history. Then they invited people to create stories inspired by these items, lasting no more than three minutes. Today we're going to talk with Julie Shapiro and Jonathan Messenger about the project and sample from the wild and wonderful dollar stories. That's spelled S-T-O-R-E-Y-S. Get it? We'll start with I've Got a Question for You by Zach Rosen of Detroit Public Radio. Now, Zach's story wasn't exactly inspired by the bell, the trap, or the mug, but instead by the process of trying to find inspiration. Hi. Um, hello? Yeah. Mm. Hello. hello? No, um, hi. This is, this is hi. Zach. I was, I was wondering if I could ask you a few random questions. Uh, I, I have a few well, questions. Well, you know what? Hi. Hello? <laughs> Ma'am? I, I don't know what kind of questions Hello? you're going to ask Hi. me, oh. and, I, and I, so I, I, I can't answer uh, questions Hello? to people I don't know. Um, that, that's thank you. Hi. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. This is, this is Zach. I'm, I'm working on this this audio project. Hello. Hi. Hello. Can you hear me? Uh huh. Yeah. How's it going? Uh, Hello. All right. I was wondering if Hello. you have any thoughts um, about mouse traps Hi. in the home. Who? Mouse traps, like setting mouse traps for little fuzzy mice. Is Who are you? Hi, uh, my name's Zach. Are you there? And you just decided to call uh, and ask me that? Yeah, I, I, I dialed a random so number in the phone book, and um, I'm, I'm just calling Hello? people that I don't know and asking them I don't, what I don't they really think about um, myself, mouse so traps. <laughs> Why would you ask people that? Um, oh, you make them? I'm, I'm not making a mouse trap. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to maybe do something that has to do with the mouse traps. Oh, oh, wait. Yes. Hi. Um, I am not a solicitor. I just yes. have, um, basically, I'm trying to come up with ideas okay. about things having to do with bike bells. Sure. And I'm just wondering if you have okay, any yeah, ideas or thoughts oh, about good. that um, you can freely associate or any, really anything that comes to mind when you think of bike bells. Thank you. Oh, hi. Hello? Hi, Mike. Not, yes. not Hello? at the moment. I yeah. can't. Mm-hmm. I 
Yeah. No, not Hello, not now. <laughs> what about mouse traps? Oh, uh, what? Mouse traps. Oh. Just close your eyes and think about mouse traps. Oh. <laughs> you know what? I just can't. I just can't think of anything. I'm an old woman. <laughs> you don't sound old. Maybe if you want to call me back sometime. Okay. When should I call back? Huh? When would be a, a better time? How long do you have to get this? Are you? Um, I only have uh, until Friday. Hello. Oh. Ma'am. How are you? Oh. Yeah. Hello. You know what? I really can't think of anything. How was your day? But I do wish you all the luck. Thank you. You've been you've been very sweet. I really appreciate it. This is this is Zach. Thank you. So so have a have a great night. Okay. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye. Are you still there? Hello. Hi. Hello? Can you can you hear me? I've got a question for you by Zach Rosen of Detroit Public Radio. Being a dollar store aficionado myself, I had to know just how Julie and Jonathan could possibly whittle their choices down from the thousands of dollar store items in the thousands of dollar stores to just three. Well, we had a destination based on Jonathan's favorite store, which we probably shouldn't reveal. That's right. It's right. on the airwaves. Oh. Top secret. Cut I'll, I'll talk to you about that off the air. Yeah. 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 We were looking, I think we were looking for pieces that had an audio component, at least one that had sort of an audio component the sound to it. Yeah. Attached to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, there's a part of, of this store that I love that I, I refer to as Crazy Town mm-hmm. because as, as wild as some of the stuff in Dollar Store is like in this one area just seems to be where they dump all the all the sort of undefinable objects <laughs> even wilder yeah and uh what i look for is what i call evocative crap and that is something sort of so mundane just the absolutely most mundane thing imaginable that it just sort of forces you to think what could possibly be important about this to something that is so outrageous or strange or or even something that's mundane but then has some weird tweak on it some sort of mutation that's uh <laughs> what you see a lot of in the store uh that's the sort of thing that i always look for at the end of the day no matter what we, we would have picked it would have been fun the project would have still been a total Absolutely. success because yeah. you know what's surprising is how many people have very personal relationships with these random items so no matter what you would pick you would get great stories about them so julie then what surprised you the most about the submissions that you received what surprised me? Well, the thing is, when you have three random items, the stories come from all over. I guess that's what's most surprising, is that when you thought you had heard every story possible related to an item, you'd get another one. Of course, that said, there were some themes that kept coming up depending on which item we used. You know, the bicycle bell brings back childhood memories of riding a bicycle. You just see over there, that is my very first bike my dad ever bought me. Bicycle bell. You know, I still have scar on my forehead. And I go riding on my bike, and my bike has the bell. On this bell here. And I always push down on it, it makes its noise. It's bling, 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 bling. Bling, 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 bling. The mouse traps, of course, brings up issues of killing and ethics. I took a vow several years ago not to kill, and pretty much I've kept it. My husband does the killing at home. So I bought some mouse traps. And how did you feel about that? Awful. I do buy the traps. I used to set them. Now I make Phil set them. And Phil always catches his mice. Aww, poor Mousie. Um, and the mug sort of had this... <laughs> what can you say about the mug? <laughs> the mug, well, it sort of had this um, ranting feminist bent 
but it was in this really goofy font that you could hardly take seriously. Um, and so people took that in all sorts of directions. Well-behaved women rarely make history. Seldom. Seldom. It should be seldom. This is 1962, and things are about to start changing. There's nothing better than having a really good pair of bowl cutters. Aww, sh- There wasn't a rule governing how people chose to make the stories. They just were all over the map. They had sausage and roosters and Ted dancing tapes. America gel and pink guava paste. An aisle full of frosting and glycerol phosphate. She could visit the store in all 50 states. They call her Shelly 99. They call her Shelly 99. And it felt fine. project is able to give brand new people an opportunity to do something for the first time, a reason to do something for the first time. And it also is able to give veteran producers or people that have been making work over a certain number of years the chance to do something brand new or to play a little bit, have fun with the process and not have to worry about a deadline that they have to post a a new story to. By the end of the day, they can just kind of um, spread their producer wings a little bit and try something new. And you got things from people you'd never heard of before and from very long-standing producers and well-established producers, right? You got some from everybody? Oh, exactly. We we had several people, dozens of people, maybe try something for the first time. For instance, there's this one that was made by a guy who's kind of new to this. He's a big fan of radio. He's been wanting to get involved producing. And he and his brother had this completely bizarre family tradition. Diabolical. <laughs> sort of diabolical. <laughs> certainly painful. A tradition <laughs> that um, just happened to coincide with one of the objects that we chose, which was the mousetraps. And so he made this hilarious story. And what I love about this story, what we all loved about the story, was how much they laugh while they're making it. And it's contagious. We found ourselves laughing. And it's not so often that you hear sort of unbridled giggling in radio, but this is a great example of that. So this producer, and I will call him a producer because now he's made something and he's earned the title, is uh, Jamie Delapa. And he worked with his brother on this story, The Mousetrap Enthusiasts. My brother and I went through over 200 mouse traps. The mice were safe. We used the traps on the biggest house pass known to teenage brothers. Each other. I think the first one was just wedged on top of the door. The old <laughs> bucket of water on top of the door. Yeah, we used mouse traps. But you put a mouse trap up there. 
and put them underneath twenty dollar bill or a note. Uh, Paul, mom wants you to <laughs> see over. Yeah, it's the other side. <laughs> you know, he had lamps that you had to reach inside the shade to turn them on. Oh, reaching up under a lamp and getting snapped. Yeah, that hurt. I remember mom swearing at me because I put it in your shoe once and she got <laughs> caught. She was arranging the shoes and it snapped and she yelled at me, scared her. We got to the point where you and I would hardly ever get snapped because we were so cautious with everything we did. But mom would get it every time. <laughs> Snap. <laughs> mom banished mousetraps from the house. But outdoors, the game got even bigger. There's this hardware store that's going out of business. So we bought 144 <laughs> mousetraps. <laughs> I could put maybe four or five of them on my arm, like a waiter. But it was so fragile that any kind of bump and they'd all fall on you. You know, no, seriously, if someone throws it at you really hard, you, you never, it never catch you. It'd hit and bounce off and then snap. And then it would snap. That's right. right. Throw it kind of high, <laughs> spinning, so that the trigger comes down towards their hair, ears, nose. <laughs> and half the time you're laughing so hard that you couldn't, you couldn't defend against right. it. <laughs> it's just such a stupid was, scene. It was so thrilling. Three decades later. Um, so if people want to go in the office late at night, you have to reach up and grab this hide key. <laughs> oh, no. Put the mousetrap in there one time. <laughs> you could tape them on the inside on a beer bottle that's inside the refrigerator, tape it on the back side so when somebody reaches in to get it, it snaps them. And a, and a bag of Doritos would be just perfect. <laughs> oh, that's such a good idea. I once took my perennial fiance to a movie. You know, took out some popcorn, put, put the mousetrap in there, and then the popcorn, put it back on top oh, real Jesus gently. Christ. No wonder you're not married. <laughs> Jesus. You knew that was going to go bad, didn't you? No, I thought it was just going to be funny like you and I were playing. <laughs> no, she no. screamed, popcorn went all oh. over, everybody was looking at us. <laughs> so, why mousetraps? I mean, I laugh so hard, sometimes i I got to crawl out of there. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't breathe. It's like you... You know, you can't get any air in because you're laughing so hard. You know, you don't, you don't have a lot of that in life. You don't realize it, you know. And I remember doing that with the uh, mousetrap wars. Those are great. God, that was fun. <laughs> Tomorrow, I'll send this CD to my brother and the Third Coast Festival in a box of styrofoam peanuts, along with a dozen loaded mousetraps. When I first heard this story, of course, I was also laughing hilariously but I, there was a part of me is like no you did not do that is this fact or fiction and i was wondering if even he made it up and then as i was listening to some of the others i thought i'm not actually sure if this is fact or fiction and then i thought do i care if it's fact or fiction and i'm just wondering did you know when people submitted them did they tell you whether these stories were true or not and did you care you know one of one of the parts of the invitation for the project is to just take the item and make a story and run with it. So because we're not doing hard news, and we would probably not even say this is strict journalism, I don't think it matters if things are fact or fictional. And I think probably what you end up with is a hybrid of a lot where a, the crux of a story might come from truth, but then people use sound to embellish and take it to another level by bringing in imaginary elements. You know, a perfect example of this, and it also gets to a story sort of at the other end of the spectrum where a very experienced producer decided to give the project a try, is a piece called Unless We Showed Up in Hazmat Suits by Hilary Frank. And she uses tape that she collected for a real interview that she made. She was going to do a story about this woman who had cystic fibrosis, and she didn't end up making the story, but she did end up using the interview tape in her dollar story. 
And I think a, most of the dollar story, I think, is true. But I think there's some fictional elements, too. And even knowing prior to her making the dollar story that she was making a regular story about this sick woman, I don't know which parts are fictional. And I don't think it's clear from listening what's true and what's not true. But um, the result is this very captivating, uh, sweet, very gentle piece about uh, two friends. So this is Hillary Frank's Unless We Showed Up in Hazmat Suits. This is the very first speed I do. Uh, 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 Lucy didn't have many friends growing up. This is the final speed I do. Uh, While other kids were running around playing on their lawns, she was inside clearing mucus out of her lungs. She has cystic fibrosis. Now Lucy lives in a tiny box of a house on the corner of two alleys in Philadelphia. Every day, while she's going through her morning routine, she hears this at the intersection outside her window. The girl who rides the powder blue bike looks like Pippi Longstocking. She's got red braids, freckles, sometimes even striped socks. Each time she passes, Lucy runs to the window. She wants to call out to the girl. She wants to grab her by the wrist and bring her inside for a hot cup of tea. She's the girl who has more in common with Lucy than anyone in the world. That's, that's really kind of the way it is. The girl doesn't know it, but Lucy is the person she chats with online every night. They met a few months ago on a message board for people with CF. We basically found each other through these posts that were about pregnancy. Lucy recognized the girl's braids in her picture right away. And, you know, picked up on the fact that we were both trying to conceive at the same time. Lucy and the bike girl tell each other everything. They talk about how their doctors have advised them not to have babies. They talk about their husbands coming to terms with the idea that they might wind up as single dads. They swap coughing techniques. She taught me this technique of the arms to really thrust the air out like... <laughs> Recently, the girl told Lucy she wished that they could be real best friends, that they could give each other pedicures and play Connect Four. Lucy had an urge to run down the street with nail polish, knock on the girl's door, and tell her they were neighbors. But it would be too dangerous. Online we have signatures, and hers says that she has bespatia. Bisopatia is a type of bacteria that isn't harmful to most of us, but it's different for people with CF. I would inhale some of these germs, and when you are diagnosed with having bisopatia in your lungs, your life expectancy is cut in half. When we both got pregnant within weeks of each other, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm never going to get to be able to see your kid. Like, that was just... That tore me up a bit, and I was like thinking about Fairmount Park, and I was like, oh, you know, we could stand like three feet apart, and I could make sure I'm upwind of her, and <laughs> I think that was might have even been in a dream. Then I realized, I'm like, yeah, this is not going to happen, unless we both showed up in like hazmat suits or something. Unless we showed up in hazmat suits by Hillary Frank. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. Today we're listening to some of the bizarre and wonderful results of the 2007 public audio challenge, Dollar Stories, a collaboration between the Third Coast Festival and the Dollar Store Show, founded by writer Jonathan Messenger. 
For this occasional live evening of readings, Jonathan gives writers, actors, and comics an item from the dollar store and then asks them to write a short story inspired by the item. Here's a story by Jonathan inspired by a unique oddity. It's a mouse pad, like for your computer mouse, that you actually fill with water. And it is called, appropriately, Aquapad. When Charlie Burns lost his job, his uncle Vin had a proposition for him. You're young, Vin said. You could still be in college. I'm 35, said Charlie. You could pass for college. Vin wanted Charlie to go to St. Francis College down the road and hand out free samples of his new invention, the Aquapad, a mouse pad that could be filled with water. Uncle Vin thought it would take off with college students like the lava lamp or incense or ultimate frisbee. It would have the cool uselessness that appealed to people who hadn't yet learned to work for a living. I'll give you 50 of them, and you go down there and you stand out on the lawn, said Vin. You stand out on the lawn and hand them to whoever takes one. Just give them away, Charlie asked. The first 50, then they'll all be buying them, said Vin. But try to get the cute girls to take them first. Charlie had a hard time picturing what an aquapad looked like. Vin said there were boxes in the basement, but he wouldn't take him down there until he agreed to the job. For now, it was just the dusty linoleum of the kitchen. But why fill them with water? asked Charlie. For no good reason, said Vin. I'll pay you ten bucks an hour. Charlie Burns, standing at the corner of the northwest quad of St. Francis College, felt trapped. He'd attended this school 18 years ago. Of course he couldn't pass for college age now. He was being forced to face a truth he'd already accepted. But the more he was made to look at it, the more painful it became. If someone had told him he was too old to pass for 20 or 21, he would have laughed and agreed. But thrust into the throng of long-haired guys and narrow-hipped girls, he knew he couldn't blame someone for calling the cops on him. He clearly didn't belong. Three pretty and intelligent-looking girls with black and pink and turquoise hair walked by him. Aquapad, he said. The girls startled as if he'd produced a knife and squiggled past him down the path. A group of four athletic-looking guys approached. Aquapad, Charlie said. Aqua what? One of them mumbled. Aquapad, he said. What's that, like a maxi pad? Another yelled. Charlie didn't say anything. They were just four sweatshirted missed opportunities. Charlie could see the rest of the day before him, a string of thwarted salesmanship and embarrassments of age discrepancy. He tried to look at the bright side of the matter at hand. He was getting some sun. He was getting paid. He didn't have to be out looking for work. In a way, he was tapping into the enriched life of a college student. He was faking it, sure, but he was here on campus and the sense of self-improvement was palpable, if not actual. Another attractive girl and her slightly less attractive sandal-wearing boyfriend approached. They had their arms around each other at impossible angles, and their hands pressed into each other's sides like their love was a super-hot superglue and they had no other choice. Hey, Aquapad, Charlie said. What? The boyfriend said. Aquapad. What? Aquapad. I don't know what you're saying. Take an aquapad, Charlie said. A what? An aquapad. The boy and the girlfriend, still in a vice grip of their mutual love, just stared at Charlie. It's free, he said. The boyfriend took one without saying thanks. When they'd gone far enough along, Charlie picked up the duffel bag he'd lugged the mouse pads in and followed them. They walked slowly down a concrete path and cut through the short grass of a campus quad, past a statue of a founding college president, past an abstract piece dedicated to an astronomer, and past St. Francis himself. The two climbed concrete stairs to a building and disengaged for a moment so the boyfriend could open the door for the girlfriend 
and when Charlie made it in there, they were back to their rightful positions, like they were posing in case a sculptor happened to walk by and wanted to make a new statue to them, the most famous lovers in their tiny college world history. Charlie made his way into the bistro, the student cafe that smelled of grease vats and freon. He ordered chicken fingers and fries from the guy behind the register, the only person he'd seen there his own age. They nodded to each other, recognizing in each other's eyes the same joyless displacement, both sheep in sheep's clothing. With resignation, Charlie took his receipt to a small round table in the corner and slumped. Excuse me, this may be a weird question. He looked up to a woman with gold-rimmed glasses and straight brown hair parted in the middle. But are you Charlie Burns? Charlie took another moment to soak this woman in. She looked to be about his age. He spied crow's feet crinkling in the corners of her eyes. There were definite creases in her forehead as she looked at him, wondering. He let her wonder for a moment more, trying to solve the puzzle before it was solved for him. Yeah, he said. Oh, said the woman, relieved. I don't know if you remember me. I'm Julie. Julie Saunders? We dated like 20 years ago. Here, actually. Of course, Charlie remembered now. He remembered her well. They dated for six months their freshman year, his only year, but parted during the summer when it was clear Charlie wasn't going to come back. He could remember her, but he couldn't recognize her. He couldn't see in her face the person she used to be. How are you, Julie? Charlie said, and she nodded. She had a canvas briefcase slung over her shoulder, and it looked weighted with books and importance. I'm great, she said. Charlie heard his number called, and he stood up. Julie took it as a sign and stepped in for a hug, which Charlie hadn't prepared for, and the two collided with the same lack of grace they'd had as lovers 20 years ago. His teeth hit her forehead, but no blood came. He heard her teeth clatter together and was glad she hadn't bit her tongue. He had the presence of mind, at least, to hug her. Just like old times, she said. You bet, Charlie said. You want to sit down? Julie told Charlie how she'd started teaching at the school five years ago and was up for tenure this year, and it was looking good. She was the only woman in her department and the only one who'd published in the last ten years. What are you teaching? Charlie asked. English, if I remember right. Chemistry, actually, said Julie, not unkindly. She smiled at him again. He liked that she acted so warmly toward him, despite his failure of nearly every social grace. Even though Julie of 2007 wasn't recognizably Julie of 1989, he found himself liking this one just as much. She wasn't pretty, not in any way he expected a woman he'd fall in love with would be pretty. Her eyes were close together and slightly magnified by her glasses, and her clothes had crossed the line from professional to boring. But he was well aware of the current state of his desirability. He figured on a celebrity scale, he ranked somewhere between Howie Mandel and Bobcat Goldthwait. What was really gnawing at him, at that moment, was that she had recognized him so easily, while she had taken a completely different form. It couldn't be like Uncle Vin said, that he could still pass for college age. There was still so much of him on the surface, so much of his 18-year-old self still squatting in his 35-year-old body. He was suddenly embarrassed. Chemistry, he said. That's awesome. So I have to ask, said Julie, again smiling with a certain shine that made him wish he had something interesting to say. Oh, I'm just working a job here for the day, he said, just helping out my uncle with his business. What kind of business? Sales, Charlie said. Oh, really? Charlie looked down at the table in her hands, which were noticeably lacking any rings. This wasn't normally the kind of thing he noticed. What are you selling? Computer stuff, said Charlie. 
components, mostly. Anything we could use in the lab, she asked. Charlie said no, that it was mostly for students. Well, what is it, she asked. Uh, said Charlie. It's an aquapad. A what? Aquapad? Say it again. Yeah, an aquapad. Sounds interesting. What does it do? Here, Charlie had to make a decision. He could continue down this path of misdirection, stalling, and nudging Julie into a misunderstanding of his work, or he could confess, admit that he'd lost his not-so-great job recently and was now working for his sketchy Uncle Vin for $10 an hour, pawning crap off onto the young minds Julie was trying to shape. It's a mouse pad that you fill with water, he said. He nodded down to his open duffel bag, and Julie was nice enough to make her glance quick. Oh, said Julie, that's something. They locked eyes for a moment, and he could see the war going on in her mind, her kindness and curiosity straining against each other, wanting to know what he was talking about but being too nice to ask. It's just something I'm doing to help my uncle for a little while, he said. I lost my job recently, and he needed some work, so... That's nice, said Julie. But he could see it in her eyes, that the curiosity had won out and that she was now looking at him, a man not so unchanged from the last time she'd seen him, enough to recognize him sitting there waiting for his chicken fingers. The two of them just looked out the big bay windows of the bistro, trying to think of a polite way to get up and go, any topic to broach lightly so the last thing they would talk about would not be Charlie's failure. Nothing came for an obscenely long time. Charlie looked out onto the footpath, and there they were again, the couple all tangled up in their naive and youthful love, their hair practically the same length. He thought their worries were probably young, too, only a few months old at best. They passed closely by the windows, and Charlie could see it dangling from the boyfriend's right fingertips, light as a feather, leaking water onto the concrete. Julie shot him a glance when she saw it, too. They watched the kid separate from his girlfriend, wrap his arm around his torso, and fling the aquapad, like a frisbee, out over the St. Francis quad, spraying himself, his girlfriend, and all of their friends sitting in the grass, all of them laughing and hating it at the same time. Aquapad by Jonathan Messenger. Jonathan is also the book reviews editor at Time Out Chicago, author of Hiding Out, a collection of short stories, and he's the founder of Featherproof Books. The Third Coast Festival received 82 dollar story submissions, and you can listen to them all on our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. Four of these 82 were selected to be the 2007 Short Docs. Now this means that they were presented at our annual conference in Chicago and had a special feature on the website. I asked Third Coast Festival Managing Director Julie Shapiro just how they made those selections. Well, for the short docs, you know, the whole Third Coast Festival staff sort of um, came together to make the decisions about what we'd choose. And I think we honestly were reacting to the ones that we really liked. And for some reason, they either surprised us or they used sound very well. And we wanted a range. We wanted something that was funny. We wanted something that was serious. We wanted something that was weird and maybe unique to the exact person who made it. And we also thought we should incorporate producers from another country to see if there's a different style that they use. And But mostly what we're doing is picking four that we think really show the versatility of radio, uh, show all of the different ways you can tell a story, and also will excite and encourage other people to think about making stories themselves. 
Well, talk us through my life as a cup. This is a really odd but funny story, and it has a kind of an odd history life behind it. Tell us about it. Well, one thing you really don't hear in public radio very much are character voices. I mean, somewhere along the line, they just became sort of forbidden. So the fact that this entire dollar story, My Life as a Cup, is told in a character voice from the point of view of the cup made it stand out to us immediately. And after we sort of got over the chuckles of hearing this sort of strange cup talking in its own voice and started listening to what the cup had to say... It's written very intelligently, and it's, it has a very light style. Um, the cup has a personality. You start rooting for the cup. You start loving the cup. And and it had a sort of self-awareness about what it said. The premise is, what if cups didn't appreciate what was written on them? So it had a sort of a self-awareness about that saying and the pitfalls of small aphorisms like that. And by the end of the piece, it makes a very pointed cultural criticism. So it seems like a big joke, but by the end, it says something very important. And that's one thing that we realize with these small stories. They're only three minutes long, but they often get to really big ideas in such a way that maybe they leave question marks or leave the listener just wondering and thinking more about this little topic that they've touched upon. All right, well, let's listen to it. This is My Life is a Cup by Sean Hurley. It is not well known, obviously, for how could it be but that things in stores do not wish to be purchased, do not wish to be brought home, cherished, put on display, or into some rotation of use. This stay-on-the-shelf preference is true of all products, but it is especially true of cups, and it is even more especially true of political cups, cups which bear some pithy slogan or controversial message. I bring this up because I am such a political cup, and against my screaming antipathies, violent hollers into the creamy palm of the older, excellently good-smelling woman who brought me down off the shelf, and even from the counter, bellowing out my rejections and repudiations to the cashier. Get your hands off me! All along knowing that human beings are incapable of hearing Cuppy Cup, the badly named language of the cups. I must admit now that I am, that I have been, sadly, acquired. I am a proud cup, and happy in my cupship, but running dubiously, and against the perfection of the volume of my reservoir is a rather fervid bit of feminist agitation propaganda urging women into unquaint and unsafe and revolutionary actions, which I do not, as a cup, condone. If only I had a rag, a curtain, and some small bit of motor control, I could cover the little saying over from time to time. But to the point, across my chest reads the newly minted call to arms. Well-behaved women rarely make history. It is unfortunate that lost among the expressions of the cups is the ability to sigh, scream, yes, wobble to no visible effect in the cupboard, yes, laugh, moan, mutter, curse, yes, sigh, no. Well-behaved women rarely make history. What seems unfortunately more to the point from my admittedly diminished and cup-like vantage, is that well-behaved men do make history, which perhaps strikes a little closer to the heart of the problem, and therefore might be a bit more conspicuous as far as any solution. 
If I had my druthers, I'd be set high upon a shelf at a messy and perennially troubled store, and that's what I'd have written across my chest. Well-behaved men make history. Simple, flat, potent, and worrisome. Instead of proposing solutions, I would rather, more directly, regard the problem. And as the potential browsers passed me by, I'd be pleased to note their intake of my aphorism, and humbled if they sighed. My Life as a Cup by Sean Hurley from Thornton, New Hampshire. Once again, here's Third Coast Festival Managing Director Julie Shapiro. Sean isn't brand new to audio production. He actually makes a podcast pretty regularly that is um, really features his writing and the voice of uh, the Sher- cup. Yeah, <laughs> well, it sounds like the cup. It's not exactly the cup. It's this character that he created that has been inspired to sort of continue writing in the voice of this character. His name is Sherwin Sleeves. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's very sort of old school storytelling, deep voice. You can sort of imagine gathering around your radio on oh, a cold night cook. and yeah, and listening to this. And um, it's I. I think his website's radioghost.com where you can hear more of his podcasts. But we're hoping that Sean does more for the radio. And uh, even after coming to the conference and presenting My Life as a Cup, he was approached by a couple of producers and has already been on the radio two times in New Hampshire where he lives based on uh, people hearing his story, My Life as a Cup. Now, the next dollar story is a completely different style. It's called Stiff Peaks. Tell us why this one caught your ear. Well, it catches your ear because it starts off with a list of cookie ingredients. and um, That would catch my ear. <laughs> yeah, completely caught my ear. And then it's sort of mixed in stereo, so you're hearing things in both voices. And then there's this voice starting to tell a very surreal story. And as it continues, it just gets more and more and more imaginative. And um, he, the producer, Jeff Letterly, the item he chose to make his dollar story about was the bicycle bell. And it has what to do with cookie ingredients? Well, very little, but somehow he pulls these two narratives together where he's baking cookies and he's riding his bike in a far western town and he goes into a bakery and every item in the packaging of the bicycle bell shows up in his piece. Okay, well, here's Stiff Peaks by Jeffrey Letterly. Chocolate and almond sugar cookies. Uh, flour, unsweetened cocoa powder, sugar, fruit, and nut oatmeal, oatmeal cookies, cookies, baking powder, eggs, butter, granulated sugar, ground sugar, cashews, baking soda, salt, eggs, orange juice. Um, another soda, Sunday afternoon pops, spent sifting through cookie recipes, brown sugar, crackles, Moravian spice cookies, filled oatmeal date cookies, lemon thins, poppy seed, orange biscotti, pine nut cookies. I know I'd have made those before. Three egg whites, half cup sugar, half cup pine nuts, lemon zest. In a mixing bowl, beat egg whites and salt with an electric mixer on low speed. Raise the speed to high when the whites begin to form stiff peaks. Stiff peaks. I was driving through Colorado or Utah and reading the signs for the mountain ranges. LaSalle Mountains, Mount Wilson, Wasatch Range, Cedar Mountains, Chavano Peak, Terrace Mountains, Pagoda Peak, Cliffs, and then Stiff Peaks. From what I could see from the car window, 
very tall, rocky mountains, mostly covered with snow. A simple frosting made of powdered sugar, milk, and butter. And a town stretched out in the valley below. Built upon a graham cracker crust, baked just 15 minutes at 350 degrees to make it strong enough to add houses and a post office and a church and a grocery store and a gas station at each end and a hardware store and a drug store and a doctor's office and a bakery in which I park my car in front of. I open the bakery door. All of the beautiful pastries and breads and cakes and each one with a corresponding number to differentiate it from the others. I'll have item number 96-80074. I bite into it. Through its semi-crunchy silver coating to the spongy white cake inside, where every space in the cake is filled with mountain air that I can feel on my face as I pedal harder to reach the summit. It's difficult, very difficult, but worth it. As I know, I'm almost, almost, almost at the summit. I see it ahead, and the mountain snow drifts across the path and bites into my aching calves but tells me not to stop. And just then, I, I made it. I made it. I made it. That was Stiff Peaks by Jeffrey Letterly of Chicago. The next dollar story was inspired by a pack of four spring-loaded, old-fashioned mousetraps, and it's called The Trap by David Maxson. Julie, what can you tell us about David? Yeah, David Maxson is um, a musician who lives in Brooklyn. He also has never really made any radio before. But The Traps inspired him to think about a problem that he'd had with some mice when he was living, I believe, in New England. And he wrote, evidently, he wrote a whole lot of text and had to cut it down to three minutes. So to fit everything in, he has this really continuous sort of um, ongoing, almost run-on sentence, stream of conscious sort of delivery. And he packs a lot into the story about the ethics and how he felt about killing mice. Um, a lot of people made stories about this, but with David's, we felt like he really, he ends in a sort of uh, profound, bigger question sort of way. And he brings a lot of different sound into the piece. There's humor, but it also takes on a very serious question that he himself is asking himself. Um, and it, there's images in this piece. You know, radio can bring so many pictures to life. And he just managed to really make a dense, dense three minutes worth of story and at the same time be very clear and direct about what he was trying to say. Yeah, I agree. And also, I think his choice of music really, really, really builds a lot of suspense and adds to the tension in the piece, which drives it forward. I really like it. It's called The Trap by David Maxson. When the weather was warm, there was no problem. The mice would be out enjoying the beauty of Vermont like everybody else. But when the season turned and temperatures began their annual freefall, they wanted in. It started with small signs, the corner of a cereal box that had been gnawed away, a brief sighting in the middle of the night when you got up to get a glass of water. But then came the scratching and chewing in the walls. But we didn't want to hurt the mice. We tried banging on the walls, sealing the food, whatever nonviolent means we could think of. The house was a sieve. So after a string of restless nights, exhausted, we'd come to believe in the death penalty for murine home invasions. Heck, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, gave an award to a guy who invented a more humane trap because it kills them with gas instead of blunt force. If PETA is okay with killing them, I can get over it. 
For a dollar, I picked up a four-pack of traditional mouse traps, a small piece of wood with a simple metal spring that amounts to a tiny, blunt mouse guillotine. This is what is known as the spring-loaded bar mouse trap. It was apparently invented by a guy named Hiram Maxim, who also invented one of the first self-powered machine guns in the 19th century. The first night I was awoken by the clap and rattle of the wooden trap. I jumped out of bed, and a not-quite-dead, writhing mouse was caught in the trap. And mice in Vermont are not the gray, black-eyed monsters I remember from my native Wisconsin. These were deer mice. Brown fur coat, the white patch on the breast, big ears, big eyes. Like little, tiny, fuzzy deer. This was problematic. Everyone knows it's wrong to kill cute things. Ugly things deserve it, sure. Ugly things would kill you if they had a chance. Cute things, though. Cute things are innocent, and they don't know any better. Over the course of the next few weeks, each morning, I'd wake to a dead mouse or two, each one shocking in its slight variation. A clean break in the middle of the back or neck was easy to handle, but a mouse with just its snout and a single paw clamped under the cold metal bar, it was somehow perverse. I hated starting my mornings like this. I don't care what Peter thinks, I didn't like killing mice. I was happy when warm weather returned and the traps could sit underneath the sink, unset and idle. New life, warmth, and sunshine washed away the shameful necessities of the previous winter, back to killing ugly things, like mosquitoes and ants. When the next winter rolled around, I can remember waiting longer before we turned the heat on, hoping again to deter the little buggers from even taking up residence, to no avail. They came back, worse than ever, but this time I couldn't do it, so I bought some poison. Poison was better because it was stealth. I didn't have to wake up and see their little crushed heads and hear the snap and rattle of the traps going off while I was in bed. We don't want to have to see the unsavory results of our actions. We don't televise executions or do them in the town square. Seeing something seems not only to drive reality home in our minds, it's as if without it, there is no reality. It's like the old saying about a tree falling in the woods, and if no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? It's as if the only thing we ever object to about the results of our actions is having to perceive them. Winter turned to spring once again, and then to the heat of summer. And just as the mercury inched up into the 80s and 90s, I noticed something. A slight odor. Faint at first, then increasing. The smell of dead mice in the walls. The Trap by David Maxson of Brooklyn, New York. And this brings us to the last featured short doc of 2007. This is one of four people that you invited to the Third Coast Conference to talk about and play their work. It's called How to Be Heard by Nina Perry. What can you tell us about this last piece? Well, Nina came the furthest of all of our short docs producers. She came from London, and she chose to use the bicycle bell to inspire her story. And the idea that she started thinking about was how small and insignificant a bicycle bell might sound in the middle of traffic. And this sort of led to her thinking about small voices and how can voices that are small or not heard in society even be heard. So she took a conceptual idea and then directly addressed it by actually asking a speech therapist how one with a small voice could learn how to project more and have more power through sound, through using their voice. Well, let's listen to it. It's called How to Be Heard by Nina Perry. Three things you need to make yourself heard. Good breath control, a good resonance, and speech clarity. Breath is the power in a voice. If you want to make a louder noise, you're going to use more breath than you would for everyday speaking. Um, If you want to get someone's attention who's a long way away, you're going to take a much bigger breath. Thinking about somebody like a, a soldier who's calling out instructions or something like that. Resonance is the space that we have for um, a voice to um, reverberate. And the only true spaces 
a human has for this is um, mouth, back of the nose, nasal cavities and the throat. That's it. Those are the only spaces. Between our larynx and our mouth are a lot of muscles and we can move that space and change the shape of that space. So somebody who's got quite a tight little space in there might sound a bit like that. Somebody who pushes their voice up behind their nose might sound a bit more nasal or something like that. Somebody who um, makes a big space and uses a lower pitch might sound a little bit more fruity, you might say. If you're really trying to explain something to somebody, you might make your speech a lot more muscular. Quite often when people are asking for directions or talking to somebody who perhaps doesn't understand them clearly, they're going to be much more clear about the words they choose to use and also the way they use their lips, their tongue. They might just make sure that they're being absolutely crystal clear. If a bicycle bell wanted to be a foghorn, it would have to learn to choose how it began its sound. Basically, the beginning of sound begins with an in-breath, begins with inspiration. So you breathe that thought in and you think, I'm going to send my sound away. I'm going to send my sound away. And then you use all the power of the muscles that you have and you send that sound as far as you can. I'm going to send my sound away. A good thing to do would be to practice. Practice a lot, practice using your breath, practice being clear practice what you want to say and really believe in what you want to say so you've really got some conviction and some commitment behind the message that you're sending send my sound away and have confidence if you want somebody to get out of the way you need to be really direct about how you ask them to do that i think the the main thing is everybody has a right to be heard how big or small their voice is they deserve to be heard How to Be Heard by Nina Perry. You've just finished listening to stories from the 2007 Third Coast Short Docs Challenge. Here's ReSound producer Katie Mingle and Third Coast Artistic Director Julie Shapiro to tell you about our current Short Docs Challenge, which we want you to participate in. All right. uh, Thank you, Gwen. Like Gwen said, I'm Katie Mingle. I'm the producer of ReSound, and I've actually pulled Julie Shapiro back into the studio to talk about this year's Short Docs Challenge, 2012 Short Docs Challenge. So, uh, Julie, thanks for being here. Thank you, Katie. As you can tell, I love talking about the Short Docs, so let's dig into this year. Yeah, so what's, what's the challenge this year? So this year's challenge, uh, again, has three rules, and the main rule is inspired by our collaborator, Every Block, which is an online forum for neighborly conversations and community building. The main rule this year is that you have to feature at least two neighbors in your short doc. The second rule is that you have to put a color in your title. This is completely unrelated to the neighbors, but the challenge will be to find a connection. And the third rule is that you have to include three consecutive seconds of narrative silence in your two and a half to three minute story. Okay, so what is narrative silence? Did, <laughs> did you make that up? I, I kind of did make it up, but you know, through it kind of means what it says, narrative silence. We're looking for silence that helps you tell your story. You've probably heard of the pregnant pause, 
We are looking for very pregnant pauses in these short doc submissions. Uh, usually we ask people to include certain sounds to help tell their stories. This year we're turning that on its head and inviting you to include silence to help tell your story. Uh, okay, so it's it's basically silence that, that illustrates something, that says something. Um, and the neighbors, like how big of a role do they have to play? Like, because we don't want to get just a hundred stories that's just an interview with your neighbor like that's it yeah we're not necessarily talking about sitting down in your living room with a couple of neighbors and just asking them questions uh, we're looking for creative approaches to featuring neighbors so you could walk into the grocery store down the street and make your story there and feature the checkout girls or guys there you could maybe you live in a more rural environment and your neighbor happens to be a four-legged furry animal in some way you hear that animal in the background of your story. These all count as featuring your neighbors. So we leave it to the participant to interpret the rule as broadly as possible and um, give us some pretty interesting uh, takes on who their neighbors are and the stories they have about them. All right, so those are the rules. Who who do we want to, to submit to this? As every year, we're looking for everyone and anyone to submit a short doc. This is really a project for the most experienced producers and folks that have never tried it once in their lives. This is the reason to make something or the reason to make something differently than you usually do. Is there is there an incentive? Is there a reason I should do this besides just pure, the pure joy of doing it? We think that's a pretty good reason in the first place, but yes, there are great incentives. Um, namely, we'll be picking four short doc submissions to feature at our Third Coast Conference this fall. These will be the, the winners uh, from all of the submissions. And so if yours is picked, you get to come to the conference, all expenses paid, which is an extra incentive for people outside of Chicago, and present your work in front of 400 plus of the uh, most inspired and inspiring producers making work today. So that's one incentive. We also just kind of counter back for people who say, why should I participate in the short docs? Why not? All right. So so what's the deadline? How long do people have before they need to get their, their submissions in? Submissions are due by the end of April. Uh, so you have quite a few weeks to get busy. And in fact, we've had our first submission posted uh and it was sort of an in-house job. We uh, were surprised and delighted when our mascot, the pigeon mascot of the Third Coast Festival, submitted the first short doc this year. Um, with a little help from our excellent short docs intern, Jocelyn Pierce. And uh, as you will hear, Pidgey features at least two of his neighbors. There's a color in the title. And there's a nice three-second chunk of narrative silence right in the middle. All right, let's hear, let's hear Pidgey's short talk. Here's Flecks of Grey. My name is Pidgey, and I hate my neighbors. I moved to Navy Pier three years ago. It's a great place to live, lots of people, very little traffic, and most importantly, an abundance of discarded hot dog buns, French fries, and mostly empty chip bags. When you're a pigeon looking for a living space, that kind of thing can really make or break a place. But I learned very quickly after moving here that the scraps weren't mine for the taking. I had competition. Seagulls. I hate seagulls. They're rude. They're loud. They're abrasive. I know I'm filthy, but they are filthy. And I'm tired of them acting like they own Navy Pier. Unfortunately, my other neighbors don't seem to share this point of view. 
The seagulls aren't so bad, Pidgey. They add nuance and character to an otherwise bleak corner of Chicago. I actually really like the seagulls. I think they teach us a lot about the moral ambiguities of life. Wait, you don't like seagulls? Is, is that racist? I'm pretty sure that's racist. The seagulls aren't going anywhere, Pidgey. So if you're not going anywhere either, you better learn to live with them. My name is Pidgey. Yeah, I know I've been a little standoffish in the past, but I figured, you know, we're neighbors. So. Excuse me, I'm sorry. What you? I'm not. I'm not so sure about. Okay. Uh, okay. All right. I can't. I can't. I can't do it. Nope. I can't, I can't do this. People are always telling me how much pigeons and seagulls have in common. Those people need to do their research. First of all, seagulls eat us. Seagulls eat pigeons. Seagulls eat pigeons sometimes. It happens. Look it up. It happens. It's disgusting. Pigeons are doves. The words are interchangeable. Pigeon and dove mean the same thing. We are doves, okay? They wouldn't call a soap seagull because seagulls are disgusting. There's a soap called dove because doves are clean. You know, and it's not, it's not racist. You know, we're different species. I think I'm a more dignified kind of bird. Old people like to feed us. Old people run from seagulls. That was Flecks of Grey by Pidgey with a good deal of production help from our amazing intern, Jocelyn Pierce. Um, Wow, so if a pigeon can do it, uh, I think anyone out there can do it. Julie, anything else to add before we sign off? I agree. Uh, If Pidgey can do it, you can do it too. Uh, Just one more reminder about the deadline. You have till the end of April to do this. There's a lot more information on our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. If you have questions, just send us an email. And basically, we can't wait to hear from you and to hear about your neighbors. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency, on the web at doejo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. Support also comes from Third Coast Percussion, performing Gerard Grisey's Le Noir d'Etoile for six percussionists at the Adler Planetarium this Wednesday, March 14th. Tickets are available at thirdcoastpercussion.com. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, Chicago's Navy Pier, and American Airlines. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. 
The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.